Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ Church. Uh, welcome to the first, um, apparently, weekend of winter. Welcome to a communion Sunday. Special welcome to those joining us upstairs and at the Crossroads and Highland Park campuses. So I want to start uh, today by asking you a question. Why are we here? I'm not asking why are you here right now. I occasionally do ask that question. Why do we show up? What's the point of church? Right? What are we supposed to be doing? But I'm asking an even more fundamental and even more primary question. What's the point of life? What are we supposed to be doing? Why is there meaning? What's our purpose? I mean, there's got to be something more than getting up on Monday morning so we can eat and then go to work and then come back and eat and watch Netflix or see who the college football committee picked for the bowl games and then go back to work and then eat and then go back to work. And I mean, there's, there's got to be more than that. So I'm asking, in essence, what is the George Bailey question? Like, does my life matter? Is there something I'm supposed to be doing? Is, it, is a good life look different than a bad life? What's going on? Uh, we all have our Christmas favorite shows, right? It can be Charlie Brown, uh, The Grinch, or Frosty, or um, Ralphie Parker in A Christmas Story with his, you know, Red Rider, BB Gun, 200-shot carbine action, compass in the stock. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I'm favorably inclined to sort of point to uh, Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life, not because it's theologically precise. All fairness to Clarence, we're not trying to become angels and earn our wings. That's not the way it works. Um, but because uh, George Bailey is asking an important question. Does my life matter? And it is a question we're supposed to be asking. And in fact... It is a question that the Bible answers. So yes, our lives matter. They matter to God. You matter to God. Consequently, everything about you matters to God. And we see this in part in that uh, that we're made in God's image. Uh, We see this in part in the incarnation itself, which we celebrate this time of year, right? Carnos is the Latin word for flesh. If you're a carnivore, right? You're not a vegan. You're eating meat. You're eating flesh. So the incarnation is when God somehow while remaining fully God becomes in the flesh. He becomes one of us. And so the fact that the author of the play shows up as an actor on the stage suggests that the play matters, right? It's significant. And, and today, we're going to look at this from a little bit different angle. So we are in this Advent series. We're, we're looking at uh, light coming into the darkness. Last week, Dr. Joel Willits looked at the darkness. Right? We tried to say, yes, this world is broken, and there's a lot of pain, and there's evil, and we, we, we get damaged by that. And so he, he invited us, called on us to lament, try to look at the darkness, to look at the evil done to us, and to grieve that evil. Grief is a, is a gift of God. To sort of say, this is not the way it's supposed to be working. So we were starting with it really dark, and today we see that, that there is light that emerges when we come to Jesus, that he is light coming out of the darkness. So he sort of turns on the light 
in uh, a dark world. And we get this out of the Gospel of John today. So we've been in a multi-year study of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, John comes at things a little differently. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all are trying to make the point that Jesus is God. Right? We could start with an understanding that Jesus is significant. I, I think, you know, every list that you see where historians are asked, named the 10 most influential people, the 10 most important people of all time, right? You always see the same four names on that list. Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, and Karl Marx. There, there are other names on the list, but those four are on pretty much everybody's list. And it's, it's curious that it's those four because... They, they weren't exactly public figures during their lifetime. Uh, none of them wrote. Well, two of them wrote something, but that's about it. Uh, they didn't hold political offices. They were, they were religious or philosophical leaders. It's interesting that those four would be the ones that get elevated uh, above everybody else. But then once we start there, it's pretty easy to say, well, if that's the list of the top four, it's very easy to say Jesus is the most influential of that four. After all, uh, more, more books have been written about him than about anybody else, and more art and music has been inspired by him than for anyone else, and more hospitals and orphanages and shelters and schools have been started by his followers in his honor than anyone else. So uh, we could go on. I, I wrote about this in, in the book I wrote on Jesus that, you know, he gave us the greatest ethical system that we have, and uh, his birthday is the biggest global event, and tens of millions of people have, have given their life for him, and billions of others are, are seeking to study what he said and to become more like him. So it's, it's not hard for us to say Jesus is the most influential person who ever lived. The Gospels say something different than that, right? They say... The most influential person who ever lived is also God. He's not just a person. He was not just the one who gave us the greatest ethical teaching. He was not just a great example. He was not just a very significant uh, philosophical and religious leader. He claims to be God in the flesh. And he claims that he was on an assignment, a mission, that he is the Messiah, that he came uh, to live and love and teach and model and, and to set before us an example and how we're supposed to live. But he also came to die, dying a sacrificial death in our place. He claims to be God. This is a very significant claim. Um, if you had a Venn diagram of the most influential people in the world and all the people who claim to be God, because there are others who claim to be God. They tend to be, you know, institutionalized, but there are others who claim to be God. So if you have a Venn diagram of the most influential people and those who claim to be God, it is a subset of exactly one, right? Uh, Other religious leaders do not make that claim. C.S. Lewis writes about this, and I think he He says it very well. The things Jesus says are very different from what other teachers have said. Others say, this is the truth about the universe. This is the way you ought to go. Jesus says, I am the truth 
I am the way. I am the life. No one can reach absolute reality except through me. Try to retain your own life and you will inevitably be ruined. Give yourself to me and you will be saved. If you're ashamed of me, when you hear this call, you turn away. I also will look the other way when I come again as God without disguise. If anything, whatever is keeping you from me, whatever it is, throw it away. If it's your eye, pull it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. If you put yourself first, you will be last. Come to me and you will be saved. Let everyone who is carrying a heavy load come to me. I will set it right. Your sins, all of them, will be wiped out through me. I can do that. I am rebirth. I am life. Eat me. Drink me. I am your food. And finally, do not be afraid. I have overcome the whole universe. <laughs> these, are the, these are the claims that Jesus makes. And he's the most influential person who ever lived. So I would submit to you again, the, the single most important question that we face is, who is Jesus and what am I going to do about Jesus? <laughs> it's not an obscure question. Right. He's the most important person to ever live, and he makes these big, bold claims. So we are now uh, looking at the, the, this initial claim that Jesus makes, or this claim that Jesus makes in John's gospel right in the, the very initial verse. It's, it's very significant. So the, the gospels all come at things uh, from slightly different angles. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were, were written first. John, who was an apostle. John, who also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of Revelation. John comes at things a little bit differently than the others do. So he was the youngest apostle. He lives much longer than the others do. So most all of them are going to die uh, as martyrs uh, 30 years before John dies. John will be... Uh, will be tortured for his faith. He'll be punished. He'll be banished to this island of Patmos. But he will live a few decades after them. And so he's got the advantage of reading what they've written. And he adds some different stories uh, to the mix. And he is, he is noted also for, um, for coming at things with a little bit more uh, of a punch about who Jesus is. And, and one of the things that we note about John is that uh, John is the one who knew Jesus best who writes the gospel. So if you go to John uh, 1.18, there's this uh, passage. The NIV reads it, or it has it this way. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father. The Son has made the Father known. The, the New American Standard version of this, which is a little bit more of a word-for-word -word literal translation, right, which doesn't mean that it's better. It, it just means it's closer to the Greek. So First um, Peter uh, 1 is usually where I try and point people to if they want to understand the differences in the translations. So 1 Peter 1, 13 uh, gives you a very literal translation of the New American Standard Version, and it says, gird up the loins of your mind. Okay, so the NIV translates 1 Peter, and it says, uh, with minds that are alert. Okay, 
Okay, it, so it, it, it puts it in a common parlance, right? We don't, we don't wear long, men don't wear long flowing robes. They don't have to, you know, gird them up in order to be prepared for action. So you take that out. But, but if you want as close to the Greek New Testament as you can get, you generally look at the, the New American Standard Version. And in John 1.18, the New American Standard Version translates it that this passage this way. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So the word here that, that everybody's trying to figure out is the word kalpon in the Greek. The NIV said Jesus has the closest relationship with the Father. And the NASB says uh, Jesus who existed uh, in the bosom of the Father. So bosom is not a word we use very much anymore. There's bosom buddies, you know, particularly close. But hold on to that. If we go to John 13, this all sort of comes together. So in John 13, there is a, a, a statement in which we read, the disciple that Jesus loved, understood to be John, the, disi- the, the disciple that Jesus loved, laid down next to Jesus and placed his head on Christ's colpon, on his chest, right? So just pause and think about this for a second. Who has the right to lay down next to you and put their head on your chest? Some of you, no one. Some of you, your spouse or a young child. But there's a, there's a, a reflection of closeness. It's, it was a different culture than, than today, but there is a there is a statement of the closeness, the friendship that was there between John and Jesus, and so you you can argue that John knows Jesus best, and and what John says. So we look at the person that knows Jesus that closely. What John says in big capital letters throughout his gospel is. Jesus is God. <laughs> Jesus is God. Fully God. Uh, the, in the ancient church, they used to represent the different evangelists by using, in artwork, by using uh, figures. So, so Matthew was sort of a, an angel. Uh, Mark was a, was a winged lion. Uh, Luke was an ox. And John was an eagle. And the reason John was an eagle is because it was understood at that point that an eagle is the only bird that can fly directly into the sun. And so there's this sense that John is the one that can look right at the glory of God and try and give it to us. And so we have this really remarkable uh, opening line in John's gospel. And it's important for us as we ask the question, why am I here? Do I have a purpose? Do I have a meaning? So John 1.1 1, 1 opens this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this passage, there have been books written about John 1.1. 1, 1. It's, it's so important. So the, in the beginning, uh, this, was, this is going to show up. Uh, at the Council of Nicaea, where the first challenge is made to Jesus uh, that, that he was not uh, fully God, right? That he was, he was somehow a, a small g God. 
Uh, and, and, and they will look to John 1.1. 1, 1, and, and so what we get in the Nicene Creed, one of the things is that, you know, the, this emphasis Jesus was begotten, not made. And, and he was, so, so you don't have in John 1.1 1, 1 a statement saying, in the beginning was God the Father, and the first thing that God the Father did was create God the Son. Now, what, what we're being told here is in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was God the Son, the Logos. In the beginning was Jesus. There was never a moment. This will be one of the things that the, the creeds will make. There was never a moment. There was never a day before Jesus. He is eternal. And then he goes on at, at the end of this statement to say, the word was God. Okay, Not God-like, not partially God. The word was God. So it's making the statement, Jesus is God. What I want us to see is something that you might have missed before. It says that Jesus was the Word, the Logos. Now, Logos in Greek, the Greek word for word, it was a very important philosophical term for the Greeks. We translate it, or you can at least see pretty easily that the word Logos gives us the word logic. But that that's not really the direction we need to think. It's not logic as in, um, you know, a philosophy class, a syllogism. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That, that's, not the, that's not the direction that this is going. This is the logic of life. This, is, this defines purpose. This is explaining what we're here for. So we... <clears throat> Let me explain this. We, we started a few weeks ago, we, we piloted, we've been piloting a service at the Highland Park campus on Thursday nights. And we remodeled part of the, to set up for this, we remodeled part of, uh, of Highland Park, the first floor, took out some offices and other things, and put in this really nice coffee shop. And it's, it, this is a service, same sermon, uh, but it's geared at uh, it's geared at 20 and 30 year olds, so it's got this coffee shop feel to it. Uh, the sermon is shorter, which I know will get your attention. You're like, wait, there's a service where the sermon is shorter. Why haven't anybody told me about that service? Yeah. So we're piloting it, and uh, the sermon is actually just as long in the end because. It's a 20-minute sermon with 10 to 15 minutes of questions at the end of it, and, and, and you got to be in your 20s or 30s. So it's, it's, it's got a very different vibe to it that we're trying to create there. One of the things that we did is we bought, a, a, uh, we bought secondhand a very high-end espresso machine. We got it from Lovell's. New, it's like $7,000. We paid a fraction of that, but... Uh, and we don't know how to use it, but we've got this really, this really nice coffee maker for this service. If you came over to the Highland Park campus and you saw us using that coffee maker as a doorstop, you would know that we didn't understand its purpose, right? We don't understand the logic behind it. If you saw me with my iPhone pointing it at the TV, trying to get the TV to change channels, and if there's an app for that, I don't have it, you would know that I don't know what this is for. Or if you saw me trying to use my iPhone to hammer a nail, right, you would go, no, 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 no. you don't understand what that's for. It's going to be damaged if you misuse it. 
Now I've got to turn off Siri here. I accidentally pressed that. So anyway, the Greeks went from this understanding that you could look at something and figure out its purpose to looking at humanity and saying, what is our purpose? What were we designed for? Why are we here? Because there's ultimately a purpose for this, and we don't want to be an iPhone being used as a hammer, right? We don't want to get broken by being misused. So Socrates and Plato and other early Greek philosophers were all weighing in, trying to establish what, what are we here for? What is our purpose? Now, by the time that John writes, a pessimism has fallen over the Greek philosophers because they can't figure it out. And there's no agreement. And they sort of had spread out into three camps. There were, there were the Epicureans. The, the, these were the, the early hedonists, right, who said, our purpose is pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So good food, good wine, sex. That's what the purpose of life is for, to, to, to have, have pleasure. There was another group that said, uh, the skeptics, uh, following someone, who, Pyro, who said, we can't ultimately know what our purpose is. Right? We can't trust our senses. Nobody agrees. We can't know why we're here. And then there was a third group, the Stoics, who said, we actually have no purpose, but we should act as though we do. The, the courageous, the brave, the noble thing to do is to just suck it up and act like life has purpose. Okay? So there's a pessimism that has fallen into this. Into this setting, right, John uses their word, logos, logic, purpose. And he capitalizes it and he says, in the beginning was the word, was the logos, was the purpose. And the purpose was with God and the purpose was God. Right? And he's, he is speaking directly to them. And he's saying, there is meaning to life. There is a plan. You were created by a God who loves you and who does help define what a good life is supposed to look like. Right? So the message here, though, is that it's not a philosophy. <laughs> right? God didn't love us, so he sent us a big idea. He sent us himself that we could have a relationship with him. What is our purpose? Our purpose comes out of a relationship with him, and he sent his son to restore that. Now step back from this for a second and realize those three categories that I mentioned that the early, uh, the early Greeks had fallen into, we don't use those same terms. Nobody says I'm an Epicurean. Uh, right? Very few people identify as a hedonist. But really those are the three categories that are still out there. There are some people who say, I'm just, you know, I'm just looking for pleasure. I'm going to sleep around. I'm going to, I'm going to pursue money, whatever makes me happy. That's all I care about. There's another group of people, a big group right now that says, you can't really know. There is no absolutes. There is no ultimate truth. There is no ultimate meaning. So whatever you want to believe in, if it helps you sleep through the night, that's great. Right? There's no meta-narrative out there. You get to make up your own reality because we can't know. And then there's a third group that, that says, 
uh, there actually is no meaning. There actually is no way uh, ultimately to, to have any value because it's all going to end. We're just part of, we're the accidental uh, exhaust of the combination of space plus time plus chance. But there's no, there's no God, there's no meaning, there's no purpose. Jacques Minot, a 20th century um, Nobel laureate, uh, the author of Chance and Necessity, is one of the ones that articulated this the most clearly and the most forcefully. He wrote, The ancient covenant is in pieces. Man knows at last that he is alone in the universe's unfeeling immensity out of which we emerged only by chance. Our destiny is nowhere spelled out, nor is our duty. The kingdom above or the darkness below, it's for us to choose. The universe was not pregnant with life or meaning, nor the biosphere with man. Our numbers simply came up at the Monte Carlo games. Is it a surprise then that like the person who just made a million dollars at the casino, we should look around and have this strange feeling of things being unreal? So there are some who say, look, what you see is all you get. It's a cold, dark universe. Um, This is the the strict materialists. Um, Some people will try and, and suggest that this is what science takes us to. Carl Sagan famously said, the cosmos is all there is and all there was and all there ever will be, right? There's nothing else out there. So um, some people, Woody Allen, for instance, says there's nothing else out there. But you know what? It, it's best if you just sort of, if you, if you smile and you enjoy the sunset and you hug a child and you, and you just say there's beauty in the world and that's the meaning I'm going to get. Right? That's ultimately the message that Woody Allen tries to make in his films. There's no higher purpose, so you've got to make up your own. Those are the three options, and I would submit to you. Right? Into that world, Jesus says, no, in fact, you do have a call. There is purpose. God sent his son, and John said God sent the purpose definer, the logos. God sent himself. God sent his son. Uh, And he was there in the beginning, and everything comes through him. And these are the claims that Jesus makes. Not that he's an example. Not that, that, that he brings an idea that we can follow. Not that he's simply a great moral teacher, but that he is God And that we have our purpose. We are defined. We find meaning when we embrace him and yield to him and follow him. Our meaning comes through a relationship with Christ. So I would ask, how is your relationship with Christ? Are you seeking him? Seek Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. And your meaning and purpose comes in a relationship with him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of uh, your word that is always full of depth and beauty and insight. We thank you that we are not left without answers. We thank you that that our life can have meaning in a relationship with you. I pray for those who don't know that saving relationship with Jesus. 
that um, even now, Lord God, they would, they would be turning to you and turning to Christ. And I pray for those of us who know Christ that we would uh, yield more and follow more and understand that our purpose comes in a relationship with him and that, that you have us here to follow his example, but also to yield to him as Lord and Savior, to worship him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.